Hey folks, this is Joseph Taylor, and I wanna welcome you to the Canopy Church Podcast. We're a brand new church practicing the way of Jesus for the renewal of Chicago. We're so glad you've joined us today. We have begun the new year by taking a big step into what's next with our official online launch. If you haven't yet joined us for an online service, consider joining us at 10 a.m. on the first and third Sundays of each month by going to canopychicago.org and clicking Watch Church Online. I hope to see you there. Okay, let's jump in. A few weeks ago, Maria and I sat on the couch one evening with contented bellies from a home-cooked meal. Uh, We were each reading a good book while sipping wine. In the other room, our four-year-old son and our eight-year-old daughter played contentedly together, kind of lost in an imaginary, laughter-filled world of Legos and space fights and trolls and treehouses. Outside, snow softly fell, making the warm blanket that we were snuggled under and the music that softly played all the cozier. A person looking at us would have found nothing particularly remarkable about this leisurely evening scene, other than maybe a solid practice of Hygge, the Danish art of coziness. But for those who have eyes to see, that moment was sacred. It possessed a deep beauty and mystery. Consider this. Who conjured those delicate, innumerable white crystalline shapes to fall from the sky, reflecting the light as they fell and covering everything with a beautiful serenity and magic? And what minds lie behind the writing and printing of letters, forming sentences, forming chapters, forming stories that transport and teach and inspire us? What kind of intelligence creates such artifacts? And what miraculous circumstances combined seed, soil, vine, and trellis in distant countries nurtured by sun and rain in order to create fruit rendered into juice, stored in barrels, patiently waited upon, and finally producing this drink so rich with texture and body and flavor that, oh yeah, just so happens to gladden the spirit pretty mightily. And for my kids playing in the other room, What is this precious gift that we call imagination? Where does their laughter come from? How can two kids transport themselves from a five by seven room in Chicago to a world of adventure and wonder at the snap of a finger? The feel of home, the delights of a rich shared meal, a husband loving his wife, a sister loving her brother, chords and melody making music, children aspiring to be heroes, There was far more going on in our little apartment than a casual observer might see. I've borrowed some of this imagery from author and scholar Paul M. Gould, who in his 2018 book Cultural Apologetics writes, The grandeur of heaven is on display if we have eyes to see. The music of heaven sings praise to God if we have ears to hear. The aroma of heaven invites us to a feast if we have the nose to smell. Our senses and sensations suggest there is more. Our frailties and our failings whisper there is more. Our minds and our hearts and our guts conspire together to tell us there is more. One of our favorite singer-songwriters and poets, Andrew Peterson, 
put it this way. There is more, more than all this pain, more than all the falling down and the getting up again. There is more, more than we can see from our tiny vantage point in this vast eternity. There is more. He goes on. A thing resounds when it rings true, ringing all the bells inside of you. Like a golden sky on a summer eve, your heart is tugging at your sleeve and you cannot say why. There must be more. There is more, more than we can stand, standing in the glory of a love that never ends. There is more. More than we can guess. More and more, forevermore, and not a second less. There are several words we could use to describe this quality of more. Mystery. Wonder. Glory. The divine. The ancient Greeks called it transcendence. Plato wrote that there were three universal, eternal, absolute, transcendent qualities. Truth, goodness, and beauty. He argued that these universal, transcendent qualities pervaded the cosmos and imbued everything with meaning and depth. Contemporary philosopher Paul Kreeft built on Plato's teaching of the three transcendentals, writing that they represented the three fundamental longings of the human heart. Kreeft argues that no matter what culture, time, or place you might travel to, you will always find the longings for truth, goodness, and beauty. Cultural forms may change, but the longings remain. Kreeft also speaks of the three prophets or guides or capacities of the human soul, reason, conscience, and the imagination. The capacity for reason leads us in the pursuit of truth. The capacity of the conscience leads us in the pursuit of goodness. And the capacity of imagination leads us in the pursuit of beauty. And yet, we live in a disenchanted age. As we have seen, the secular and scientific materialist worldview presumes to have dispelled the so-called superstition of religion, and it has undermined and eroded the enchantment of the world. It has essentially turned blind eyes to the transcendence that permeates. According to the materialist worldview, all there is is what we can see and measure and calculate. It is a worldview preoccupied with truth, but within a plausibility structure that holds a narrow scope of what truth even means or how it can be discovered. And yet, the ache for beauty remains. The longing for goodness endures. And the desire for a broader and a deeper truth found beyond the bounds of science and math persists. Today we will be exploring what these universal longings point us to. Or perhaps not so much what, but who. We are continuing our series called Elementals, where we've been exploring the kind of basic building blocks of the Christian faith. Each week of this series builds on the content of the previous weeks. So if you haven't listened to the first couple of teachings of the series, I highly encourage you to check out the podcast and get caught up. The first two weeks of the series, we were laying a foundation with veritas, which is Greek for truth. 
Uh, and upon that foundation, we built out the premise that we need revelation from outside of ourselves in order to illuminate the truth. I argued that our chief source for illumination is the divinely inspired Word of God, the Bible. This library of prophetic scripture is our primary guide for uncovering truth. And we saw that the Greeks taught that there was a single unifying principle that made the entire universe coherent and cohesive as a single unified whole, which they called the Logos. But as the Apostle John wrote in his first century biography of Jesus, the Logos was not just an impersonal principle or a disembodied idea. It was a person. Today, we turn our attention to that person. Today, we are looking at Theos, Greek for God. So who is this person that binds and unifies the entire universe into a coherent and cohesive whole? And what do these three universal human longings have to do with it? Well, I think we need to consider why our understanding of this person, who is, of course, commonly referred to as God, is of such incredibly great consequence. In his 1961 classic devotional, Knowledge of the Holy, theologian and Chicago pastor, A.W. Tozer, wrote that what comes into a person's mind when they think about God is the most important thing about them. He wrote, The history of mankind will probably show that no people group has ever risen above its religion, and man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure or base, that is, degraded or inferior, as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, he goes on, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous, meaning predictive, fact about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. In our postmodern milieu, it is very common to hold one of two basic beliefs about God. One is essentially a judgment about the character of the God of the Bible. And this judgment is most common among secularists and atheists. It's a judgment that says that this God, particularly the, the so-called God of the Old Testament, is capricious and violent. Popular author and atheist Richard Dawkins writes, The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction, jealous and proud of it a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. Somebody's been using their thesaurus. Two things to say in response. First, it is ironic that it is only if God exists and only if we have some way of discerning his objective moral truth that we could make such a claim about the moral status of God. Dawkins himself denies objective morality, which it basically undercuts his ability to authoritatively assert the wickedness of God. Based on what standard can God be so judged? Second, 
I would suggest that a fair and a careful reading of the Old Testament reveals a God that's very different, a God of love and justice and compassion. Yes, there are parts of the Bible, particularly the Old Testament, that can seem difficult at first glance to reconcile with the character and the ministry of Jesus. But Jesus himself held that the Old Testament was authoritative and inspired, and he saw himself building his own platform and ministry upon its truth. A fairer and a deeper reading, like the way Jesus read it, would show us a God very different than the one Dawkins is describing. We, we don't have to assume that millions of readers of the Bible have erred on this fundamental claim about the character of the God of the Bible. Now, the second popular idea we often hear in our current moment is that all the religions of the world are simply describing different aspects of one larger deity, that their differences are just superficial, and that all religions are more or less equal. Those who believe this presume to be the truly enlightened ones, broad-minded enough to be truly inclusive. The God of this view is held to be something like the aggregate of the best of world religions, an all-loving spirit in the universe. A journalist for Time Magazine wrote in 2007 that to believe that one religion was inferior or superior to another made one a right-wing extremist. But do we really believe that religions that hoard guns and ammunition to prepare for the end of the world, or those that practice child sacrifice or genocide, are not inferior to any other faith? Most people would agree that they are. A closer look at the basic beliefs of religions exposes their fundamental differences. Simple logic tells us that because the beliefs about the character and nature of God from different religions differ so wildly, so fundamentally, they are incompatible. Buddhism and Taoism don't believe in a personal God at all. Hinduism believes in a multiplicity of personal gods. Judaism, Islam, and Christianity all believe in a single personal God, but his nature and character are very different from one to the other. These are not superficial differences. They are fundamental. They lead these religions to very different ethics and practices, and they shape their practitioners in very different ways. We should not be surprised to find some overlap in some of the ethical teachings of major religions, but we should also not make the mistake of believing that their differences are superficial or that a coherent belief system can be built simply on the overlapping doctrines. The postmodernist may choose to believe in an all-loving spirit in the universe, but where have they gotten that doctrine from? And make no mistake, it is a doctrine, even though most postmodernists are allergic to the term. Many religions describe attributes of God that could not be rightly reduced simply to love. I would suggest that the all-loving spirit in the universe is simply a caricature of the Christian God. One, a caricature that agrees with the believer of it at every point. One who never cramps their style and, or holds them accountable for what they say or do. And there's a kind of condescending arrogance or perhaps just an ignorance of the basic facts that would hold that all religions are more or less equal. If Tozer was correct, then there is nothing more important than this in this life than discovering and discerning what God is like. It will shape 
the trajectory and the quality of the rest of our lives. It will form us into moral, loving, happy, well-adjusted people at peace with the lives that we have been given, or it will shape us into something else entirely. What do we imagine God to be like? What fills our minds and imaginations when we consider the divine? It can be a difficult thing to discern. It can be kind of hard to sort through the caricatures and creeds and conceptions in our own minds to find what we really believe he is like. I would suggest that we can get much closer to an answer by considering questions like these. What is revealed in moments of crisis? Is it a a God who is like a genie in a bottle, always ready to pop out and do your bidding? Or is it a chiding God, wagging his finger at you, telling you that it was your fault that you got into this mess? Or what kind of God is revealed in moments of pleasure? Is it a killjoy God, one who would make you feel guilty for feeling pleasure? Or is it a God who has nothing at all to do with pleasure? What kind of God is revealed in moments of epiphany, where learning and understanding just suddenly click, where you see or you just get something that you hadn't before? What is revealed in moments where you encounter great beauty? I think these questions can get us much closer to figuring out what our truest, most deeply held beliefs about God really are. And once we see them with some amount of clarity, we can then consider whether those, where those beliefs have come from and whether or not they're valid. Have they come from true revelation or have they come from somewhere else? Have they come perhaps from our fallible parents or from our own negative life experiences or from our own wishful thinking? Are they true? And what kind of life do those beliefs lead us to live. Now, in much of classical Christian theology and in Tozer's own work, descriptions of the nature of God have often been boiled down to an abstract list of attributes that are very slippery to get the mind around. Immutable, omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent, omnivorous, splendiferous, loquacious. Okay, I just added those last three. I don't know about you, but when I hear those kinds of words, it has a similar effect on me as when people who are really smart at math start talking about infinities. My eyes just instantly glaze over. My my brain grasps at nothing but thin air. I break out in hives. I start sweating profusely. It's weird. It's a thing. Now, I am certainly not suggesting that these attributes shouldn't have their place in our doctrine. I'm simply suggesting that for most folks, at least I think in our current moment, they're not particularly helpful at populating our minds and our imaginations and our hearts with a clear and meaningful and accessible concept of God or of making sense of our experience of him. Instead, with our remaining time, we are going to consider how the three universal human longings of truth, goodness, and beauty point us to an understanding of what God is really, truly like. And because the first two weeks of the series have already covered a lot of the ground of the universal longing for truth, where we discovered that all truth belongs to God, we're going to focus on the remaining two today, goodness and beauty. As we talked about last time, we need revelation from outside of ourselves to show us the true nature of reality. And today, I would add to it, 
that we need revelation in order to show us the true nature of God. We are not at all likely to come to a true and accurate conception of God just by rooting around in our own minds or imagination or experience. This morning, we are going to use these universal human longings that Plato and Paul Kreeft and many others have written about as our starting points. And then we will consider what the Bible says about God in a way that addresses and informs those longings. So first, let's consider the universal longing for goodness. The brilliant and prolific theologian and author Frederick Beekner spoke about this universal desire in his book Longing for Home, where he wrote, whether we are rich or poor, male or female, our stories are all stories of searching. We search for a good self to be and for good work to do. We search to become human in a world that tempts us always to be less than human or looks to us to be more. We search to love and be loved. And in a world where it is often hard to believe in much of anything, we search to believe in something holy and beautiful and life transcending that will give, that will give meaning and purpose to the lives we live. Our innate longings lead us, if we would pay attention to them, to desire a better world. We all long for goodness. Even those who profess to not believe in much could quickly tell you the things that they believe are wrong with the world. Deep within the human conscience, we find an unexplainable longing for wholeness, for justice, and for a meaningful life. We long to experience life the way it was meant to be, even if we can't really explain why we think it should be that way. Philosopher Paul Gould writes that we know in our guts that violence, murder, rape, misery, coercion, disease, loneliness, and the like are not how things ought to be. But why is this? Why should we believe that these go against the way they ought to be? Who gets to decide what ought to be? The secularist or the materialist can make some sense of why we would be bothered by these things when they happen to us, because they reduce our chances of fulfilling our biological mandate to survive and procreate. But they cannot explain why we would care about these things happening to people outside of our own family or community or tribe. And yet we do. Somewhere in each and every human heart, we desire for goodness to pervade. The postmodernist tries to make sense of it by saying that it's because all reality is defined by power with majorities oppressing minorities, and it is the prerogative of the oppressed to fight for power for themselves. Rights are simply a creation of the majority culture. But what obligation is there then for those with the power or those from the majority to relinquish power in order to benefit the minority? The postmodernist has no real answer. In short, we desire what is moral. Here's how sociologist Christian Smith describes it. Moral is an orientation toward understandings about what is right and wrong, just and unjust, that are not established by our own actual desires or preferences, but instead are believed to exist apart from them, providing standards by which our desires and preferences can themselves be judged. Where does this come from? 
Why should we take issue with wrongs done in or against our own lives, let alone out there in the world? On what basis could the writers of the Declaration of Independence declare that it was self-evident that all men are created equal, especially when they themselves so clearly did not live as if they believed that meant all men? And in our own day, the United Nations enforces universal standards like the Geneva Convention in order to hold people accountable for the violation of universal human rights. But what is the basis for a standard of universal human rights? Does the aggregate of the best of human religion get us there? On what standard could we even decide what constitutes the best of human religion? Well, the answer, I believe, to all of these questions is one and the same. Because there is a God, one who has designed human life to work in a certain way, and because that design is based on his own character. The universal longing for goodness points us to the source of all goodness. It reveals the outlines of the standard and definition of morality and goodness. Just as the Declaration of Independence argues, it is because there is a creator, one who has endowed all of his creations with unalienable rights. And the scriptures root all of that in the character and the nature of God himself. Let's turn now to the book of Exodus, chapter 34. In this scene, Moses has been raised up as a prophet, helping lead the people of, of Israel out of 400 years of slavery to the Egyptians. After he himself had run away from God and from his calling for 40 years, Moses had a powerful encounter with the God of his ancestors at a burning bush in the wilderness. And he grew in intimacy with God from there. One chapter earlier in Exodus 33, we read that Moses spoke to God as one speaks to a friend. And in the boldness of that friendship, Moses asks to see God's glorious presence. Maybe he wanted another burning bush experience. Maybe he knew that all of his experiences with this God who was also his friend, were mediated and, and buffered, and he wanted the real thing, the pure, unadulterated, unveiled glory of God. So he asks for it, and God says yes. But because God knows that no human can see him in his fullness and survive, God tells him he will put Moses in a crevice of the mountain, put his hand in front of Moses, and walk by while pronouncing his name. This is the closest Moses will get to seeing God as he really is. And it's a lot. Now, in the ancient world and in many indigenous cultures today, a name was thought to have the power to reveal someone or something's true nature. To call something by its right name was to grasp what it truly was, to behold it as it actually existed. This is why it's so significant when God renames Abram as Abraham or renames Jacob as Israel. It is God himself revealing something of the true identity and destiny of these guys. And up to this point in Exodus 34, no one has ever heard the true name of God. He's been known as the God of the Hebrews or the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But here, 
in the intimacy of friendship with Moses, God is about to reveal more of his true character and nature than anyone on the planet had ever seen. So we pick it up in verse 5. Then the Lord came down in a cloud and stood there with him, and he called out his own name, Yahweh. This name, the proper name of the God of the universe, is not one to be handled lightly. It is sacred. Hebrew rabbis and scribes forbade anyone to speak it out loud or even to write it for fear of misusing it and dishonoring God. This is where the name Jehovah comes from. It's basically a Hebrew variation of Yahweh so that they could use it without fear of blasphemy. And it is right and good that we should bring reverence and fear to our use of the name today. But because in the book of Hebrews we are told to come boldly into the presence of God like Moses, I believe it is good for us to call God by his right name and to let that name invoke God's true character, which he's about to reveal. The Lord passed in front of Moses, calling out, Yahweh, Yahweh, the God of compassion and mercy. I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin, but I do not excuse the guilty. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children and grandchildren. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations. Moses immediately threw himself to the ground and worshipped. There is so much here, far more than we have time to unpack this morning. For a deeper dive on this, I would suggest picking up John Mark Comer's excellent book, God Has a Name. But I want us to focus less on the particulars and more on the broader contours of what is being revealed here about God's nature. Who is this Yahweh God? What is he like? Is he capricious and violent like the God Dawkins and others describe? No. He is the God of compassion. The word for compassion is related to the Hebrew word for womb. It suggests that God has the feelings of a mother. For his people. He has the compassion of a mother. He is the God of mercy. Mercy means showing favor to someone where there is nothing they've done to deserve it. Israel's or Moses's righteousness were not the reason that God had chosen them, and their failures were no reason for God to unchoose them. He is slow to anger. The Hebrew can also be translated as long-suffering. God endures the sin and rebellion of his people for far longer than they deserve before he allows them to feel the consequences of their choices. He doesn't lash out. He's not impulsive with judgment. He holds out on punishment until he cannot hold out any longer. And he lavishes loyal, unfailing love on a thousand generations. The Hebrew term here is chesed, which can mean loyalty, steadfastness, or kindness. He doesn't give up. He doesn't quit. His love is sturdy. It's dependable. It outlasts everything else. There is an abundance and a generosity to his love 
that knows virtually no boundaries. But there is a boundary. Sin ultimately does bring consequences and punishment. And the consequences of sin affect entire families. The Hebrew expression here is to the third and fourth generation. This is what we might call generational sin. The alcoholic father begets addicted children. The daughter who is abused by a parent becomes an abuser of her own children who continue the cycle themselves. Does this make God vindictive? No. He knew that he had designed human lives to be profoundly interconnected to the extent that the failures of one, especially within the family, bring consequences for one's children and grandchildren. Sin has consequences. Consequences that go beyond just the individual. But notice the comparison. Those consequences of sin can play out for three or four generations. But Yahweh's love plays out for a thousand generations. There's no comparison between the judgment of God and the hesed love that he pours out lavishly and faithfully on generation after generation after generation. The Hebrew prophets who would follow summed up this passage and the character and the nature of God that it revealed with this short phrase. Yahweh is good and his faithful love endures forever. The poets and songwriters of the Psalms repeat this chorus over and over and over. When you distill God's name and his character down to its very essence, this is what you get. God is good. He is faithful. And his love is the most powerful force in the universe. The deep longing for goodness, for wholeness, for justice and morality that we find in every people, group, and culture that has ever or will ever exist, it all points to the God of the Bible because it all comes from him. It reveals his design written like a blueprint on our souls. Just like your DNA provides a code that instructs your cells to come together in just such a way to form you in the same way the universal longing for goodness in the soul instructs us about how our lives are supposed to come together and work. All right, let's move on now to the third and final universal longing. Human beings are drawn to beauty. We are, as C.S. Lewis puts it, votaries of the blue flower. That is the mythical symbol in German literature of intense longing and desire for something that is on our horizon but remains out of reach. It's that ache you feel when you look out on what the hymnist called lofty mountain grandeur. When you look up at a crystal clear night sky out beyond our city lights and see stars upon stars upon stars. When you go to a concert, remember how that used to be a thing? And you feel so moved and inspired to create. It's the feeling of longing when you see a truly beautiful person. It's not just sexual desire. It's a desire for beauty. Our longing for beauty draws us to literature, to film, to music and poetry and dance. These things awaken within us our desire for a world that dazzles and satisfies us. Now consider this. Charles Darwin once wrote that beauty created for its own sake would be absolutely fatal to my theory 
He understood that if all biological life was about the survival of the fittest, then there was no place for beauty other than perhaps for attracting a mate in order to procreate. But beauty for its own sake? That would be disastrous. And yet, that's exactly what we find in nature. In fact, we find what has come to be known as gratuitous beauty in nature. Beauty that serves basically no practical purpose for survival or procreation or for anything else. Scholar Michael Reeves writes that there is something gratuitous about creation, an unnecessary abundance of beauty, and through its blossoms and pleasures, we can revel in the sheer largesse of the Father. Consider the case of the mannequin, a sparrow-sized tropical bird that has fascinated biologists for some time now. You might have seen them on the Planet Earth series. Male mannequins perform a, a kind of courtship display that involves them doing gymnastic dances while vibrating their wings at incredibly high speeds in order to generate a particular musical tone. In order to create this sound, they have to vibrate their wings so quickly that only wings with solid bones could handle it. Now, birds normally have hollow bones in order to keep them light and to enable them to fly, but mannequin's biology compromises on their ability to fly and thus to survive in order to enable the males to do these gymnastic musical courtship dances. What's even crazier though is that the process of producing these heavy boned wings begins while the mannequins are still embryos before they become either male or female. As a result, both males and females have these same thick bones. So their biology is essentially making them all worse flyers so that the females can hear the beautiful musical tone that the males create. And then along comes Richard Prum to tell you that there's more to it even than that. Prum is an ornithology professor at Yale University and a world authority on mannequins. Years of watching the males carry on with their gymnastics until they nearly collapsed convinced him that much of the female selection of their mates is linked to nothing except their love of beauty itself. That the only force pushing things forward is female appreciation. This, he says, has nothing to do with functionality. It is pure aesthetic evolution with, quote, the potential to evolve arbitrary and useless beauty. Checkmate, Mr. Darwin. And the mannequins are just one small example. We could point to thousands of other examples of gratuitous beauty in nature. Beauty that seems to exist purely for itself. The presence of gratuitous beauty points to something beyond survival or procreation or randomness. The rich colors of flowers in a meadow. The incredible symmetry of snowflakes. The rhythm of the tides and the waves the heart-aching truth of poetry that captures a spiritual essence. It all points beyond itself to something truly transcendent. Art and beauty and creativity all do this. As philosopher Roger Scruton insightfully observes, art, as we have known it, stands on the threshold of the transcendental. It points beyond this world of accidental and disconnected things to another realm in which human life is endowed with an emotional logic that makes suffering noble and love worthwhile. Nobody who is alert to beauty, therefore, is without the concept of redemption. 
of a final transcendence of moral disorder into a kingdom of ends. The philosopher Paul Gould calls beauty a divine megaphone to rouse a disenchanted world. The universal longing for beauty points us to the source of all beauty. It points us to a designer who is himself an artist. And the testimony of the scriptures confirms and expounds on this. The psalmist sings in Psalm 19, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies display his craftsmanship. They display his craftsmanship because he is a skilled craftsman. He designed all of that gratuitous beauty because he delights in beauty for its own sake. Symmetry, color, movement, metaphor, light, and music and dance, they all come from him. He's designed them all to be discovered and used and creatively explored. I wish I had time to rhapsodize about the beauty of the perichoresis, the divine and delightful dance of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The overflow out of which has come everything that has been made. But for now, it will have to suffice to summarize that God is beautiful and he is the source of all beauty. As I close, what is the point of all this? What's the purpose of these longings for truth and goodness and beauty? What do we do with them? What are they for? Well, the Apostle Paul, addressing a group of Greek philosophers and debaters in Athens, told them quite clearly what he thought the point of it all was. He explained that God's purpose was for the nations to seek after God and perhaps to feel their way toward him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and exist. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Paul unapologetically quotes two of their own Greek poets in order to point them to the one true God, the one in whom they and we live and move and have our being. The Logos, as John would later put it, the source of all that transcendent beauty and goodness all around us. He's there if we just have eyes to see him. God desires our good. He desires for us to have lives filled with beauty and he wants us to walk with him in love. He wants us to know him. And as we see him, as we come to know him, there is only one appropriate response. It was the same response that Moses had when he first heard the name of God. To fall on our knees in worship. Let's pray.